Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker, and you're listening to another episode of the ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast. And with me, as always, is our fearless producer, the man who makes this show sound better than I could ever possibly do, <laughs> That's Phil Circus, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, ZappaCast <laughs> listeners. Good to be here. <laughs> I actually cannot believe who we have to talk to today, a man who hasn't shared at least in interviews, his experiences with Frank all that often, but he's an incredibly important part of Zappa's universe. And um, he's written a book, which you're all going to have to go out and buy. And we're going to tell you about that too. But a very gifted man, a very, very wonderful bass player, outrageously good singer, one of my favorite voices in all of Zappa musical history, Jim Pons, ladies and gentlemen. Yay. Hey. <laughs> Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Of course. How are you, Jim? Good. Very good and uh, very thankful that you've invited me to do this. I'm happy. Oh, we're just delighted to have you because up until fairly recently, I mean, you everybody else knew what happened with that band, that Zap band that you were in, but you hadn't spoken a whole lot about it. I mean, I think mostly because let's face it, you had other things to do in life. You had a whole other career and all kinds of things. And the book that you wrote is just extraordinary about it. So we're just going to kind of not give away what's in the book, but we're just going to kind of scratch the surface here, if that's okay. That's okay. And lead people lead people on to what they need to do, which is to buy the book. So, <laughs> okay. You know, it's about an hour show. So, you know, there's no way you can cram a book, that book. <laughs> <laughs> no, into an hour. It's a rich and rewarding book, we'll say. It really is, and it's uh, it's spiritually good for you folks too. So that's that's important for you to know that. So just to go back now to the very beginning, because I guess we'll just start at the start. What are your earliest musical influences? My earliest musical influences were as I've called them, the founding fathers of rock and roll, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Elvis Presley. Those were the guys I uh, loved and admired, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, and then ultimately the Beatles. Of course. When I saw them, that's when I decided that's what I want to do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, sure. Did Did you know, were you attracted to the bass as an instrument early on? Yes. Not only because Paul McCartney was the guy I admired the most, but because it only has four strings, and I figured it would be the easiest (laughs) instrument to play, (laughs) which is true. (laughs) You mentioned the Founding Fathers and then the Beatles uh, a few years later. At which point did you figure out, like, I have to get into playing in a band and I have to start, I'm going to play the bass? And when did being a musician start in that period? Well, I when I first saw them on Ed Sullivan's show, I realized, and it was like an epiphany. And as I said in the book, and I hate to keep quoting it, but I probably will, I admired all those older guys, Fats Domino, but they were all older guys. I had never seen anybody my age doing what the Beatles were doing. And it made me realize that I could be doing it if I knew how to play an instrument and had a band. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I wanted to be. And I didn't know how to play an instrument. And I didn't know anybody who did. But 
I had a vision of myself in a band playing, and I decided it would be the bass because Paul mm-hmm. McCartney was a bass player, and it happened. <laughs> it happened. I started a band in my fraternity, and we had some success, and that's how it all started. So really, you started in, kind of in college, right? In college, yeah. So you weren't surrounded by people in Santa Monica who were you know, just playing and wanting to form bands and stuff like that? No, my father played the piano when we were when we were growing up, and I loved music, and I loved hearing my mom sing. And uh, but no, I I had no musical experience of my own until I was in college. Until after that time, I saw the Beatles. That's when I went out and bought instruments for the band, and I picked out four of my fraternity brothers, and uh, we taught ourselves how to play Louie Louie. <laughs> <laughs> a highly appropriate song for your work with Frank Zappa later. About the only thing we we could do. <laughs> <laughs> there was a very interesting story about how you came to acquire a bunch of instruments. Uh, I, I had seen the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, the very next day, I realized that's what I was going to do. And I was on my way to school. Cal State Northridge at the time, and I got hit in my. I was stopped at a red light and got hit by another car, oh. and my car was totaled. I got a check in the mail about a month later from my insurance company for eleven hundred dollars. Wow! And uh, and that was enough to get my car fixed. But in nineteen sixty four, it was also enough to buy a guitar and a bass and a set of drums. <laughs> And I decided that's what I would do. And uh, then there were my, my fraternity brothers and I had instruments. Wow. So you financed the entire <laughs> band, basically. Yes. You were, the, yes. you were the money man and the bass player. Yes. <laughs> do you remember what bass, what your first bass was? I'm asking as a bass player. I, I don't remember the very first one. It was the cheapest one I could buy. The uh, first one I remember being proud of was a Framus, ah. which Bill Wyman played in the yep. Rolling Stones. And then I moved on to a Hofner like Paul had, and then finally a Fender Precision, which I played with the Turtles and the Mothers. You, you of course, had to have the Hofner having, yeah, having I had to have Paul McCartney fan. Those are actually really good basses. I, you know, a lot of people think that they, they don't kick like that, you know? But they really do. I have a friend of mine who has one, and it's unbelievable. Oh, it's a great, great-sounding great bass. Yeah. I mean, no wonder he's so faithful to it. Now. I still have mine. Do you? Yeah. I love that. And it's because it's long after that car, I'm sure it's gone. <laughs> yeah. I love how long the instruments stay in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, the, the car got repurposed a long time ago. It's right. probably, you know, somebody. I never saw it again. <laughs> I never saw it again. You obviously had to be pretty good. Even playing Louie Louie, you had to be pretty good because you came up fairly quickly. You know, I mean, uh, I always hear the bottom end of a song. I I don't know why Mm. that is. I I resonate with the bass. I hear it, and it it comes naturally that I could play it. And and again, the bass is not a a difficult instrument. You play one note and one string at a time, and it's not hard to find the right notes and... uh, memorize them and yeah so i mean i was able to do it so did you wind up you wound up playing clubs and all that stuff 
I mean, you had to come to the attention. Well, we started of... playing our own fraternity party and then mm-hmm. school functions and then local clubs around the school. Yeah. And then uh, Sunset Strip. We, we wound up playing uh, at Ciro's nightclub. Yes. When the birds, when the birds who were the house band had to go on the road to promote Mr. Tambourine Man, my band, the leaves replaced them. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's where I was getting at because you know you came up fairly quickly, and the next thing, I mean, this had to be over the space of a year or two. Tops, not more than that. Yeah, world. not more than that. That's incredible. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, it really is. Actually, I I have to say it really. Well, yeah, I mean, but in those days, not everybody and his brother had a band and. The competition was non-existent. And we looked pretty good, and we sounded pretty good, and we <laughs> met the right people, and it just—it was—it just happened. Yeah. Pat Boone discovered us at, at Ciro's. Did you? Really? I, guess I should say that. Yeah. Pat Boone. He was—he uh, was trying to resurrect his uh, career as he was a crooner and a successful pop singer from the fifties. Sure. And he wanted to be relevant in the sixties, so he wanted a rock and roll band, and. Uh, he came into Ciro's one day and one night liked what he heard and offered us a recording contract. Wow. There may not have been a lot of uh, bands you're saying, but there must have been something very potent in the water in Los Angeles because. The oh, bands, there was. Oh, my gosh. There was magic happening there. I mean, the Doors, Iron Butterfly, Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. uh, the Turtles, the Birds, uh, the Leaves. Yeah. Yeah. The Leaves had hits. We had a big hit. Hey Joe was the number one record in on the West Coast. Yeah, that was the first version of Hey Joe I ever heard, believe it or not. Before I ever heard Hendrix's when I was a kid. Yeah, because I have a brother-in-law who was really, really like he would just crank that in the car. Like, you know, because they'd play it on the radio sometimes. And he would just be like, This is the one you have to hear. The hell with Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Hendrix came later. So we we were we we although the birds were playing it on, on in person, and Love, Arthur Lee and Love, he was playing it, and we were playing it, but we were the first ones to record it. And it was different than everybody else's. We added a little break in the middle, kind of an instrumental thing I did with the bass. Yeah. It made it a little more commercial than everybody else's, and that's, I guess, part of what helped sell it. Interestingly, who was uh, Jimi Hendrix's bass player? Noel Redding. Noel Redding. He played that same bass part that I wrote. He slowed it down. Da 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 da. That was something I created for that song, and yeah, now I'm on record as having told people about it. That's one of my favorite riffs of all time. Thank you, thank you. I always liked it, and I guess people did too. So it's so melodic it's it's yeah it's incredible <laughs> piece of music just that bass part alone well thank you you would think that mccartney yeah mccartney could have written that i mean that's oh my god that's cool thank you <laughs> that's too much you definitely wrote one of the great bass riffs in all of music history so you should be very proud of that oh man is this being recorded yeah <laughs> you're just stating facts on this show in today. <laughs> okay good so at some point you made, you know, eventually, of course, you made the jump from the leaves to the turtles. The turtles, of course, having already been an established uh, successful band. And actually, the turtles having made the cover of the first Zappa album, Freak Out. Remember that there's that 
line that Frank put in the album from some guy somewhere who said, you know, if you guys clean yourselves up and, oh, yeah. you know, act right or so you could be as big as the turtles. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, um, the leaves faded. We were a one hit wonder. And uh, I thought I would go back to school. I didn't know what I was going to do. But then uh, Chip Douglas, who had been the bass player for the turtles, quit to be the record producer for the monkeys. Yes. And I had known Mark and Howard because the leaves and turtles played together from time to time. By the way, that's how I met Frank, because the Bleeds and the Mothers played occasionally. Yep. But so Mark and Howard uh, remembered me, and uh, they asked me to join the band, and it was just happened to be in the right place at the right time. After you joined, and I, I don't necessarily think it had anything to do with you, but they got weirder in a good way, so they were... <laughs> I don't know if what... it was a good way. We, we thought we wanted to be the Beatles. We wanted to write our own songs. Yes. And... Uh, we had previously been given all these good songs to, to record by good songwriters. We cut them off because we wanted to do our own. And we weren't songwriters. We were good entertainers. And we were a good band with Johnny Barbada. Boy, he was great to play with uh, as a drummer. Uh, but we started writing songs that weren't hits. So they were weird and zany, but they weren't successful. Really, you were you were there for what? Is it two years or a year and a half? Oh no, Turtles! I was there for uh, three years at least, and then I came back and played with Mark and Howard as, with the Flo and Eddie band for a couple of years. So, yep. But yeah, it was the, the Turtles was the Turtles was like from sixty seven to seventy, I think. So, nineteen seventy comes around and. The turtles go their separate ways, but then Mark and Howard, they, they join the mothers. Do you remember any thoughts you had about that when, you know, at the time? I thought it was an unusual turn of events because Frank was not known as a commercial uh, entertainer. He, his music was underground. That's what it was called in those days. Mm-hmm. But to have Mark and Howard join him, I thought was extraordinary. And, um, I didn't give it too much thought other than that until they called me and said they wanted me to join. (laughs) (laughs) Then I realized what Frank was doing. I thought it was pretty remarkable. He reformed the band into kind of commercial, as commercial as it ever got, I think. That's fair to say. But I didn't, I had my own, I had a country band. I was playing in a country band. I wasn't paying too much attention to Mark or Howard anymore. When you were playing uh, with the leaves and the turtles, and you were occasionally crossing paths with with Frank, what did you think about his, the mother's music back then? I I thought it was strange, <laughs> unapproachable. Frankly, it wasn't to my liking. I really did like the guys, though. I thought they were really nice guys. They were scary looking, but <laughs> yeah. they were nice people. Jimmy Carl Black funniest guy i ever met don preston the nicest guy i ever met yep ian underwood all those guys were great but i didn't care for his music i was raised on louis louis and he was uh he was an exotic composer of avant-garde stuff and so that's where it kind of sat with you and then you get this call from mark and howard saying will you join the band what were you thinking you know at that time like i guess 1971 
You know what? And I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody else. The first thing I thought of was, and because I've never said this, but I used to date Gail, his wife. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, wow. I say I used to. I, I, we had a couple dates. We went out to dinner once, and I took her to see a Leaves show once in Santa Barbara. And I always wondered if I was in trouble with Frank. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. So I was surprised that, uh, but I knew him and I liked him. I liked him personally very much. And apparently he liked me. I guess he thought I was capable of playing in his band because, yeah, Mark, Mark called me one day and said, Frank, he wanted me to come to London, but I couldn't because my passport was expired and, you would have went to London for 200 motels. Is the- yes. Yeah, okay. I always yeah. wondered about that because they wound up with Martin Lickert, who was, as you know, of course, everybody knows, was Ringo Starr's driver, Ringo being in the 200 motels movie. And, um, you know, the having Martin in the band, even though he was sort of a bass player, was sort of an act of desperation. I'd always wondered why they didn't just call you right away, but they did. Yeah. By the way, I've heard, I don't know if it's true or not, but, the guy who played Paul's grandfather in Hard Day's Night was also. I was thinking yes. that right before you said it, Jim. Wilford Bramwell. Yeah, Wilford Bramwell. What yep. if that actually happened? That's almost unimaginable. <laughs> I know. He was there, I, I think, for true. like three or four days. And was then he just, as Frank said, completely freaked out <laughs> and left. Oh, okay. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, yes. I, be- I believe that. Yeah, Frank said it in an interview. I wound up on the 200 Motels soundtrack when they got home from London, and I played the voice of uh, Jeff Simmons. I played the voice of his bad conscience. Yes. And I told him to start his own band and get as big as... uh, Black Sabbath was one of them. Yes, actually, something like that. (laughs) But Frank gave me a lot of chances on the the recordings to, to be humorous. Yeah, your voice is so distinctive. Like, oh, you know, when I when I first heard, um, I was coming up as a Zappa fan. This would be in the mid '80s, late ish '80s, and um, one of the first things that I well, not one of the first things that I got, but one of the first live things that I heard was the uh, "You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore" Volume One CD, and it actually uh, starts with the beginning of the uh, sofa piece that you guys did and in late 71. And, um, you know, when your voice, yeah, Devon, that's it. Um, Your, when your voice comes in, you know, you know, it's just, it's, it's unbelievably like warm. You know, I always, Uh, it's funny. I'll never forget because I played the part of God. He gave me the part of God. (laughs) Yes. And I said, Ein Licht from Himmel hoat. It meant a light shines down from heaven. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, he. we had a German tutor come in at his house. We had a, met at his house for like two months. Mm-hmm. And she taught us all how to speak German so that we could say those words properly. Wow. That's, that's and because my though. father was born in Holland, I, I knew something of the guttural sound, the Dutch voice and the German voice. That's why he gave me the part of God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think anybody else could have done it. I mean, Mark no. and Howard, Howard's no. voices don't really, you know, they don't scream <laughs> God to me. <laughs> you talked about your upper your religious upbringing, and I'm wondering like how you felt about Frank's material. 
you know, his material was always changing. And now here you are. It's kind of funny. He's offering you to play the part of God. Were you fine with that? Did you have any reservations about the material? Or I had no reservations. I, I knew it was probably sacrilegious, but I, my, I never let it bother my religious convictions. Figured Frank knew what he was doing, and I had to do what my boss said. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I liked that. I, I always thought that was interesting. The creation of the universe. Yes. And then Billy the Billy the Mountain. That was fun. <laughs> that was great. How long from the time you got uh, the call and you accepted to play with the mothers, how long before you went on the road? Because it's just interesting to think like of how long a musician takes to get up to well, speed. That was, I, yeah, that's an amazing thing about it is uh, I didn't, I couldn't play any of his music. I, hmm. but he didn't, he didn't even audition me. He hired me, so that's the most amazing thing. But I had to sit with Ian and because Frank would write the bass parts and I couldn't, I don't read, so even if I could, they were too complicated. So Ian would play them for me on the piano and dumb them down so that I could get them and put them in a some kind of a situation that Frank would accept them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but we started right away rehearsing when they got back from from London. No, uh, no discussion of how much we were gonna, I was gonna be paid or anything. Mm-hmm. I just started rehearsing. It was scary, very scary, intimidating, super intimidating, very intimidating. He, he's very, he was a real strict taskmaster, as everyone knows. You had to play exactly what he wrote, otherwise he'd be in a very foul mood. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean the thing the thing about it is when, you know, as fans when we listen to the albums that you've appeared on, it sounds so fun. It sounds well, like you've already were. been together for years and years yeah. even though so it's remarkable you, how little time that you actually were together as a band. I think the fact that Mark and Howard were there right on right beside me made it a lot easier. Yeah. Well, certainly did. Do you remember working with uh, Bob Bob Harris? Yeah, I brought Bob into the band. Oh, yeah. He, I had known him. You guys know Judy Sill? Yes, that was her husband, right? Yes. Yep. So I met her when we were in the Leaves, and uh, and Bob, too. And uh, we, we, we got to be good friends. And uh, when uh, the time came that Frank needed a piano player, and I don't remember why... Somebody must have quit, but I recommended Bob, and Bob was an outstanding keyboard player, and uh, he did audition for Frank, and Frank liked it, hired him on the spot. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I like Bob. He was a good guy. He wasn't there particularly long. I think he was there for a couple of months. Yeah, he came at the end of the end of the show, the end of the line, I think. But yeah, I never saw him again after that tour. Yeah, he was he was married to Judy Sill for a while, and then I think they got divorced, and of course she passed away young. Yeah, and he passed away. I think probably about fifteen years ago or something like that. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, great lineup, and that's the lineup that wound up doing the the Fillmore East album. Yes, what a run that must have been for you, especially with the way that ended up. With who you wound up playing with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a total surprise. He didn't tell us that that was going to happen. No. <laughs> he, You're talking about 
John Lennon and Yoko Ono for the listeners. I, I guess but, so, are we? Yes. <laughs> um, they just came out from uh, behind the curtains during our before our encore the second night. Surprised all of us. You had no John, idea. No. How, that's almost like, how can you just surprise someone with John Lennon? <laughs> well, he didn't tell. Apparently, John had come to his, John and Frank had met in the hotel room that afternoon and decided to do it. And I don't know whether Frank didn't want to tell us or forgot or didn't have time or I don't know. Mm. But, but we never, we didn't know. And we weren't prepared at all to play what, what we played. John said it was something he did in the Cavern Club. Hadn't played it since the Cavern. And it's an old blues song that we had to just uh, play by ear. And it was a long, long, a long song, too. We played for a long time together. And so, and none of the other bandmates knew as well? Correct. Oh, wow. But it was just two, two, two very simple-minded Pieces of music. I don't even call them music. They were just jam sessions and not very distinguished. Of course, the crowd loved it. Oh, sure. Yoko was screaming. (laughs) Howard, I think, I I know, I remember he put a bag over her head. I I don't know whether that was arranged or not, but at the time she used to do that. Mm -hmm. He put a bag over her head and she kept screaming. (laughs) Chaos. Chaos erupts on stage at the Fillmore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As they say it. It wasn't the most distinguished moment in our musical lives, but again, people loved it. Still that version of Well, that which is the song you were just talking about, the one that John played at the Cavern, is just amazing. And I can, you know, I always think about, you know, when, when I'm up playing, because I have a band, and when I'm up playing and we're trying to play something that we have no idea what we're doing, I always <laughs> think about Frank saying, you know, for those of you in the band who don't know what's about to happen, this is an A minor and it's not standard <laughs> blues changes. And I'm like, how do you, it's not standard <laughs> blues changes. Okay, great. So <laughs> what is uh, it? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's the way it was that night. You know, you were there, I think for, geez, about seven months or so before the disastrous European tour. And it was only disastrous because of how it ended. But you actually, I was reading in the book, you had a great time on the European tour prior to the disaster. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you always had a great time with Frank. <laughs> should, should we ask what that was like? Probably I mean, not. It's in the book. Probably not. <laughs> read the book, ladies and gentlemen. Read the yeah, book, read the ladies book. and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a rock and roll band on the road. You know, I think if you... Yeah. Yeah, if you know anything about Frank's music, you have some kind of idea. But um, here's something else: not many people know. He he, hmm. he once told me, and this was uh, this really honored me. I thought I used to love their uh, his record called uh, "We're Only in It for the Money." That's, sure. And there was a song called "Flower Punk." Yes. <laughs> and he he told me he sang "Hey Pons" on on it. <laughs> now, if you listen to it again, you'll hear it. You know, I so, always wondered about that because it really doesn't sound like punk. You know, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. He might have said them both. He might have double tracked it and said one thing one time and the other the next. That's but, funny. But that was a very inside joke that he wanted me to know about. Oh wow! This is it's a Zappacast exclusive. I had no. I'll never hear that song <laughs> the same way again. 
It's a great <laughs> song. It's a great version, and uh, that whole album was magnificent. His his greatest achievement, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you could make that argument. I mean, I I have at times. I always say my favorite album depends on what mood I'm in that day. But yeah, um, maybe that's true. <laughs> But uh, Phil, I'm monopolizing too much of the conversation, so jump right in. Oh no, you're you're, you're doing exactly what is supposed to be happening. So it's, per- <laughs> it's perfect. Am I? You are. Oh, most definitely are. You're. Okay. Yeah. You were born okay. for this, Jim. You were born okay. for this. This is fantastic. <laughs> okay, um, good. So, but yeah, Scott has has brought up the disastrous European tour. Um, you sounded like you were at the height of your musical superpowers by the time you got to the rainbow. And so any recollections of like at the end of this time, that disastrous show? Well, I'll tell you first about the Montreux show and then go to the, but, but you're right. We had been playing pretty constantly for several weeks and we were getting good. I remember thinking that we were less and less, we were making Frank smile a lot more than he <laughs> used to and that was always a good sign <laughs> yeah and uh so by the time we were in switzerland we were we were good so we were there it was a beautiful old wooden theater ancient relic and uh we were about to finish we were in our encore mm-hmm. and i guess it might have been king kong but i looked up at in the, in the uh, balcony, and I saw a flame of, of, of fire. And um, I kept an eye on it for a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it fell down into the audience, down from the balcony into the main floor. And uh, then everybody in the band saw it, and everybody in the front of the theater ran, jumped up and ran. And a lot of them came on the stage. And our road manager, Dick Barber, he yelled at us to come behind the curtains and follow him. And we dropped our instruments and ran for our lives because the stage was being crowded by frantic people. And so we went behind the curtain, went down the stairs, and wound up in a kitchen and realized there was no way out of the kitchen. And we all turned and ready to go back up the stairs, and we heard a loud crash. Our bus driver had wrapped a towel around his hand and broken through a glass door, mm. and blood was flying everywhere. And the glass was shattered, and the hole was big enough for him to pull pieces of the glass aside so we could crawl through. And that's how we got out of the theater. We wound up Wound up on a, a loading dock and uh, then got out onto the street and watched it. Stood there with the Swiss fire department, watched it burn down to the ground. Wow. wow. And I mean, I, we'd never, I didn't speak to Frank or even see him, I, I don't think. I don't remember us talking to anybody about it that night. The next day, we went back and went through the rubble, and the only thing that was found was Ainsley Dunbar's cowbell. Yeah. Oh, wow. And it was all blackened and scorched. And then Frank did a very remarkable thing. He got us together and asked us whether or not we wanted to continue the tour. First time he had ever... uh, 
inquired about what we wanted mm-hmm. like that. You said we could either uh, go home or rent instruments and finish the tour. We still had about three weeks left, I think. And we said all of us agreed we wanted to continue the tour. So he somehow rented the equipment and lights and everything that we needed for a show. And uh, we went to London and rehearsed for a week with all of it. And then he uh, he announced our uh, return to the stage, the Rainbow Theater. Yes. And that that was also a very good show. We played good. I mean, the instruments were rented, but we we did all right. We did good. And then again, uh, I think it was, I think it was in the encore. I felt some somebody bumped me from behind. Somebody ran into me, and uh, I looked to see where it had come from instead of where it went to. Mm-hmm. And when I turned around to see where it went to, everybody was already looking over the edge of the stage into the orchestra pit. Wow! Apparently, this guy had bumped passed me and Howard and pushed Frank in. And um, it's a horrible sight to see him lying down there. His, uh, his arm was behind his back and his head was twisted weird and he wasn't moving and it looked horrible. And I heard people yelling and screaming behind us on the stage and uh, I turned around and saw Herb Cohen, who was his manager, beating Beating senseless, the guy who had pushed him. And uh, the police had to come and restrain him because uh, he was, obviously, he was incensed and the guy was helpless. He was getting pummeled. Apparently, the story was he thought his girlfriend was having an affair with Frank or was Hmm. overly infatuated with Frank or something like that which was ridiculous, but it caused him to, uh, to, to go nuts, jumped up on the stage and pushed Frank into the orchestra pit. And, uh, wow. That was a shocking, shocking, horrible, worse than the fire. It was, uh, mm. it was like nightmarish. We were all in shock, just dazed and confused. And we all went back to the hotel and just sat there in disbelief. Didn't know what it what to do or what had happened and it was horrible. Sat into the wonderful experience working with Frank. Yeah, and I was reading in the book where um you said at first you had been told that maybe he would never play guitar again. We were. Yeah. We they told us that at the hospital. The next day we were on our way to the airport and they let us come and say goodbye to him. And uh they told us He's seriously injured. He, he fractured his lungs. His fractured his ribs and perforated a lung. Had a concussion. Broke his arm on one arm and his wrist on the other side. And uh, uh, yeah, they said likely he won't play because we were wondering whether or not he would recover and we could play again together as a sure. band. They said he might not ever play again. Period. And I say in the book, he was lying there in this hospital bed, all wrapped up in white bandages, head to toe. Poor guy. His arm, one arm was up in a sling. Mm. It was so sad, we didn't know what to say. So, so we were basically quiet, just looking at him. 
But then as we turned to leave, he motioned, or I heard him whisper to me to come over and put my head down. And he had something he wanted to say to me. And he whispered, your hair is getting good in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'll never forget that. It was the greatest. And that's the Frank I always knew and loved. (laughs) Sense of humor to the very end. Oh, my God. That was him Thanks, just letting you know wow. he's still there. Yes. Wow. And th- he was still there. Thankfully, he did start playing again and had several more incarnations of the band, which yeah. was amazing. Yep. Ye- years after I joined the Jets, I was hearing about Frank Zappa and the Mothers. It was awesome. That's that's great. Mark tells this really funny story about going to see him in the hospital and this is Frank is bandaged from head to toe, except there's holes for his eyes and holes for his mouth. And he doesn't say anything for a long time. And then he just says, peaches and regalia. One, two, one, two. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if he did, then it must have been very faint because he could barely talk. You could barely hear him. So after that disaster... Basically, Flo and Eddie wound up getting, you know, they put together the Flo and Eddie band. And one thing I read and I think in the book was that Herb Cohen got you a uh, Frank's manager. Herb Cohen got them a record contract. I think that's probably the way it happened. We got home and realized we have a good band. And uh, we thought there must be some way to make use of it just because Frank wasn't going to be able to play with us. We thought. So I guess that's when Mark and Howard got the idea of uh, Flo and Eddie. Yeah. Flo and Eddie was a nickname we had given to the roadies of the Turtles years earlier. So they just took that as a, a name, a working title for their band. Ah. But we we were we were good enough. And uh, I think Herb knew the guy who was producing Alice Cooper Records. Yes. I think that might have been the connection. And... He got Mark and Howard a record deal with that guy. And we did a Flo and Eddie record. And then one thing led to the next, and Alice's manager asked us to join him and go out on the road with him and open him open for him. So Flo and Eddie wound up on the road opening for Alice Cooper. Wow. Kind of makes sense, though. You know, I mean, if you're, you know, Alice being an entertainer also... Yes. You know, like an entertainer's entertainer. You know, it just, yeah, that would be a very interesting and fun evening, I think. Yeah, he was a good guy, too. I, I, I enjoyed him a lot. He was funny. And those guys were all cool. We had a lot of fun on that. That was a long tour, boy. That was 102 day, 91-nighters in 102 days. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Is the, the band that went out on the road the same band that was on those first couple Flo and Eddie albums? Because you had Don Preston, you had Ainsley Dunbar. Gary Rolls. I don't know where yeah. Gary Rolls came from. but Yeah, yeah, that's basically the band that started. It's kind of a blur. I don't remember... Uh, whether they, we all stayed together as a as the same band mm-hmm. or how it all ended, I don't I don't remember. I was becoming very disillusioned with the whole industry. So yeah, this is a, this is around the time that you you started to do a major career shift. Yes, although let's see, how did that happen? 
Yeah, I met a I met a girl that I liked a lot. I was my, oh, was it our last show it was in the New York uh, Long Island Coliseum, Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum mm-hmm. in New York. Yep. And oh yeah, Mark and I had been into in the city a couple nights that week and seen a show called Lemmings by the National <laughs> Lampoon Show, yeah. which is what. Or Chevy Chase and John Belushi and Christopher Guest and a girl named Mary Jennifer Mitchell. Yes. Who I fell in love with. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to, we, we went back to California. We didn't have any shows planned. And I thought, I want to go back to New York and be with Mary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I, I, I'm through. I'm going to hang up my rock and roll shoes. I'd done it for 10 years. <laughs> And uh, I wanted to do something else. So I told Mark and Howard that I, w- I wanted to, to leave and be parted as good friends. That's great. So they had no issue with it? No. They knew the end was near, or at least the end as we know it. They, they, I guess they had new plans, but it wasn't a, having a band. So, But I still see Mark occasionally. I... I when they come to Jacksonville, I get up on stage and sing "Happy Together" with them. Yes, that, that amuses my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Howard doesn't sing with them anymore; he's done. But the songs never die, and that "Happy Together" tour with the Cowsills and the, the Buckinghams and the Grassroots—people love those songs, mm-hmm. no matter mm-hmm. who's playing them. Yeah, and absolutely. so Mark keeps doing it every year. He tells me this is the last one, and he's been telling me that for fifteen years. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's good for him. It's fascinating. Well, you know, that's the the thing is that I've been trying to look at it as positively as I can because all of my heroes are all getting older. I mean, I'm going to be fifty this year myself. I was a teenager oh my when God. I discovered Frank. What I'd give to be fifty again. <laughs> you don't look much older than that. <laughs> you actually yeah, well, don't. Thank you. I am, <laughs> I am considerably. Yeah, sure. Are you still currently playing in a bluegrass band, or where are you with music these days? Are you still? I do. Music? I yeah. do have a. I do play in a bluegrass band, which is funny thing is, has always been a goal of mine to play in a real bluegrass band. I, I, I always loved bluegrass music. And I, everywhere I've been, I've tried to start a band and couldn't find the right people. Mm. And California, I didn't know any bluegrass musicians. In New York, there there weren't any. But in Florida, there's a boatload of them. <laughs> I joined the Florida North Florida Bluegrass Association and got several uh, uh, requests. I've been in two bands, and I'm in one now that's really good. And we just issued a CD, our first CD. Out really? You guys a cut. Yeah. If you like bluegrass music. I do. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. What's the CD called and where can we get it? Give us a, a little more info. It's called, it's called The Best of Lonesome Ride. Can you the see it? The Best of yeah. Lonesome Ride. Ooh, nice cover. Sure can. Yeah, it's a great cover. Thanks. I there, designed yes. it. Yes. Oh, you designed it. I love that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's good. It's a good record. I'm very pleased with it. I'm going to I'm going to pick one up because I am a bluegrass appreciator. Actually, I have a friend of mine who has a bluegrass ensemble that gets together occasionally up here, and um, uh, oh, wow, sometimes awesome. they ask me to sit in 
and that stuff is hard to play, boy. It's hard what to do you play, play well. <laughs> what do you play? Guitar. What instrument? Yeah. Guitar? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the lead instruments are very difficult. The bass is incredibly easy, simple. It's just seriously mindless, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but but I play good, and I play in time, and, I, and you know, you got to have a good bottom. But we have a good fiddle player and a great banjo player and a great guitar and mandolin player. Do you sing in this band? Oh, yeah, we sing. Yeah. I, I, we don't sing well. My voice isn't what it used to be, but uh, we've got the CD done. and It's not out yet. I mean, I, you're not going to be able to buy it, but I can send you a copy. I, I think it's going to be on. I don't even know if you sell CDs anymore. Who has a CD player anymore? I think you can buy them uh, online. And yeah, no, please let us know because, you know, we'd like to then let the Zappacast audience know so they can pick it up. Yeah, because it's going to be on Spotify and Amazon Music and that kind of thing. So I've got them all licensed for that kind of thing. And we'll give them away, put them by the tip jar when we do our shows. That's great. Yeah, but it's a good band and it's fun to play. I did... play bass for uh, one session with a bluegrass band, and there's been oh, no reason gosh. for me to bring it up until now. So there you go. <laughs> well, you know how easy it is. It was what? it was still fun, because I, uh, I love those instruments. So it was fun to be there in a live setting in, in here. If you're interested, you can, uh, you can listen to Ask For It on Amazon or Spotify. Ask For Lonesome Ride, which is the name of the song, by Lonesome Ride Bluegrass. And you'll hear an instrumental, and you'll be impressed. I'm putting it down on my phone right now. <laughs> you know, before we wrap it up, because we've been going at it for a while, I do want to hear about, you had this almost nearly three-decade run <laughs> as part of the New York Jets organization, which is where you went to right after you decided to hang up your rock and roll shoes. And I'm really <laughs> curious about, like, how you happened into this totally new career that you stayed in for, for such a long period of time. Well, that's another good story. My dad didn't want me to go because I didn't have a job, and uh, he thought I would wind up on the Bowery with the rest of the other homeless people. Mm-hmm. But I was in love, or I thought I was, and love is blind. Uh, by the time I got there, my friend from the Leaves, a guy named John Beck, called me. He was in New York. He had a job with the New York Jets football club as an office boy while he was waiting to be accepted as a film editor at ABC News. And he had taken this job as a favor to his father who knew somebody at the Jets. And just the day before I went to New York, he told me ABC News had called him and told him to be on the job the next day. And he was offering me this job as an office boy. He said, all you have to do is polish the Super Bowl trophy on Monday mornings, get sandwiches for the owner at noontime every week, and mail Joe Namath posters, Mm. and you get $115 a week. Wow. That's (laughs) not bad. I said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, I would do it. And so I did, and that's how I started. And... um, one thing led to another. The World Football League started, and the Jets' assistant equipment manager left to become the equipment manager of the New York Stars in the World Football League. And the head equipment manager, who I got to know 
asked me to be his assistant. So now I'm assistant equipment manager. Mm. And then Wee Bubank, who was the head coach and general manager, he heard about me. In those days, teams had a, a film company. We had a, guy, a film company in New York that shot the games and delivered the films to the coaches on Wednesday, every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And wow. that was ridiculous. That was way too too much time, and he wanted them quicker than that. Teams in the early 70s were hiring film people on staff to to film the games and deliver the coaches the hmm. movies right away. Like every single Weeb, game would be filmed? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Weeb heard that I'd come from Hollywood, and he put two and two together and thought I might know something about movies. <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I remember I told him, they call me Cecil B. DeMille Jr. in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and that And that's all it took. He said, I want you to run the film department. And uh, we were just opening a new training center at Hofstra University, and there was a big room for a film lab. I had all the equipment brought in, and my name was on the door. And I learned how to shoot a camera, same way I learned how to play the bass. I had wow. no—I didn't know anything about anything about filmmaking, but I taught myself and uh, started shooting practice one year, and then games the next. And I did it for 27 years. We went from 16 millimeter film, where I had to used to line my camera between sh- shots. Mm, oh wow. man! And in uh, 1985, it went to video, and then in 1995, it started going to linear, non-linear, digital, mm-hmm. computerized. I lived through all that. When I retired, I. Uh, was inducted into the NFL Video Directors Hall of Fame. Yes. <laughs> that is quite, I mean, my goodness, you know, yeah. quite the, because I didn't know you did that for years. And then no. I think in the 90s, I found out about it and I was just blown away that you were doing that. Like it just. Yeah, it didn't seem like a logical extension of my musical career. Well, it wasn't, <laughs> but it was what I did. And uh, it was great. They were, it was a wonderful time. and. The NFL was very good to me. We never won anything. That was a, the Jets were always bad, but not in those days. No, <laughs> no, not since then either. Now sixty nine, yeah, sixty nine had come and gone, but uh, you know. But Joe was still there. Joe Namath, and uh, I got to be good friends with him, and he's a wonderful guy, one of the nicest guys I ever met, besides Don Preston. Yes. So he's a genuinely nice guy. Genuinely nice guy. Yeah, that's great. I'm really happy to hear that. You know, I always thought that that was just so interesting that you had been on some of the biggest and most, you know, like legendary stages in the world. And in some cases, especially with the mothers. And um, now you're in the biggest and most legendary stadiums in the world (laughs) with, with the NFL. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> also, we we played at the White House, too, with the Turtles. You knew that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that and Carnegie Hall, and we played a lot of big venues. Prestige. The Hollywood Bowl. I, well, I played with, I played at the Hollywood Bowl with the leaves where I, where I had seen the Beatles. Yeah. And did I tell you, or did you read that in London, the Beatles came to see the Turtles? Yes. And I got to sit and talk to Paul McCartney. Wow. <laughs> oh, um, 
there was a film, that film. That, yeah, My Dinner with Jimmy. Yeah. That was that night, yeah. How accurate is that portrayal of uh, the Turtles and the Beatles mingling? I didn't care for the movie, but I don't remember. I guess it was pretty accurate. Hmm. Well, the truth is that George wasn't there, but and John was like on some bizarre drug. He was staring into a candle, and mm-hmm. <laughs> he had grill on either side, and Ringo was talking to our drummer, and Paul and I sat and talked about She'd rather be with me. He wanted to know the chords. That she'd oh, rather be really? <laughs> How thrilling yeah. was that? <laughs> I know my idol. I'm the presence of my God. So I'm sitting there. And it, was, it was just a couple years or a few years before you were, you saw them at the Hollywood Bowl. I I had been to see them, and now they had come to see me. Yeah, oh God. <laughs> oh my goodness! It just amazes me that you know, like you got to the point where you were just you were sort of like you know. I've done all this. Now I'm going to completely uproot and do something completely different. Most people would never do that. I know. I know. Well, I wasn't born to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I was born to experience life in as many facets as uh, I could possibly manage. A lot of people I know stayed with the music business because they did think they were born to play music. So. I, I escaped that rut. I got out of there when I when it stopped being fun and stopped being a, a decent way to make a living. I, I I decided to do something else. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was I was going to get into, but it was turned out to be good. Yeah, well, that's phenomenal. I do want to mention something you mentioned. I think before we started recording, Jim, is that uh, the book you wrote in 2017. It's called Hardcore Love, Sex Football, and Rock and Roll in the Kingdom of God. Uh, you won an award for that book in Florida. Yes. Was it Book of the Year? Yes. Book of the Year in Florida? Yeah, I entered it on a whim to see if it would get some recognition as an autobiography. And uh, they invited me to come down for the awards ceremony, which I thought was interesting, but I never put two and two to good. So I went, it was down in Tampa, I think. And there were about 450 Floridian authors there, and mm-hmm. they went through all the state, all the different categories. And I actually did win the best autobiography. Wow. And I was amazed. I was thrilled. And I, I actually was ready to leave with my wife and come back to Jacksonville. And they said, wait, there's going to be more. And at the end of the night, they said they were going to announce the winner of the overall book of the year, and they called five names. And my name was the fifth name. Wow. Wow. So I got back up on the stage, and it was like Miss America. They said, the fourth (laughs) runner-up is, and it wasn't me. Really? And the third runner-up is, and it wasn't me either. Oh, my goodness. And it was just me and a, a lady and another man, and the next name was a woman's name. So it was just me and the guy, and it was, and they named his name. So I won the book of the year overall in all the categories. <laughs> Hardcore Love won the Florida Writers Association Book of the Year award. So it's amazing. And I've been back there a couple times to MC the. New the new book awards and been a fun fun experience. I didn't expect it. So, but again, it was it, it, it's not that the book 
was written so well. It's just it had so many good stories in it. You know what I mean? Sure. I had so many good things happen. That people liked it. I think it is written well, and uh, and it has great stories. It, it's got every. It's the whole package. I'm really appreciating it. Just the fact that you've kind of been following your muse from yeah completely different field to different field. Yeah, I relate to it as someone who's had a few different chapters and occupations. Well, uh, I called it in all happenings in the kingdom of God because I do believe that there is a higher power, and that if we connect sure. with it, you can be led to great to to the proper thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never doubted that. And um, all the great great spiritual leaders of history have said that the kingdom of God is inside you. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've always looked for it. I didn't find it in religion and uh, I found it in myself. And uh, I've always honored that and tried to listen to it and uh, follow it. And it works. Yeah. But I'm here to prove it. I'm my life is a proof of it. So I had to write, I had to write about that. It's a very beautifully well-written book, and it it really deserves to be read by everybody who listens to this show. Just go to, you can go to Amazon. You can also go to uh, Jim's website, which is jimpons.com. And uh, you can get it on Kindle and read Kindle. it with really big letters because I need that. <laughs> but also, I just want to say how uh, how grateful and honored that you took some time for us today. Oh, unbelievably honored. We both have enjoyed your gifts for years and years and years. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. I, I've enjoyed it. Uh, such a great, such such an honor, Jim. I don't even know where to begin. Well, uh, I appreciate that, and uh, I'm very proud to be among the uh, guests you've had. ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast, is created by and is hosted by Scott Parker. Our producer is Phil Circus. For the latest Zappa news and more, visit Zappa.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at at Zappa. Until next time, good night, boys and girls.